0: Welcome everyone back to the podcast of champions. I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports
1: Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together we make the podcast of champions talking all things Pac-12 football. we got a great show for you today with a special guest. Brandon Huffman, uh, National Recruiting Editor for 24-7 Sports. He's going to break down the Pac-12 recruiting classes for the Pac-12 North. So we'll talk about the teams from Oregon up at the top to Oregon State down at the bottom. Before we do that, if you have any questions or comments for us, you can email us, pac 12 Podcast at gmail.com. Call or text us at 424-532-0678. Or you can get us on the Twitters at pac 12 Podcast, the website, as always, pac You can find all the old episodes. We're on Reddit, Podcast of Champions. And please, if you're on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate us, give us that five-star reviews. We love that stuff, but we don't love it more than Brandon Huffman, who's joining us right now on the line. Brandon, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great, Brandon, but I, I will say one
0: thing. I don't know. I, I can't remember. Uh, have you written us an iTunes podcast review yet? not see what what happened was
2: um <laughs> and then the thing mm-hmm. i think i got hacked
0: yeah 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 well i just want to put it out there for all the people we're gonna need some more reviews uh starting with brandon to. <laughs> uh but we're gonna need some more reviews on there
1: yeah i don't think we got one for 2021 yet do we
0: uh no not in this year not in this calendar year it's been a year since we got a podcast review. <laughs>
2: <laughs> depending on the tone of the questions i may or may not want to write one after this
0: call is done as we've as we've told people as long as you give us five stars you can write whatever you want to write you could write uh, well, just how awful I, you actually think we are
2: i've been told stars don't matter guys so
1: <laughs> 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 that's awesome yeah that's <laughs> but we, we we do love the reviews so pre- please send them in and hopefully uh, get in a huge guest like Brandon on the show will generate a few more of those reviews but our listeners have been awesome they they're so funny when they write in and there's some great questions so what we're going to do is we're going to keep Brandon around as long as we can we'll do questions with him the second Wait, half of the on, show hang on hang on hang on we yeah.
0: we need to lead this off with the right tone okay Brandon congratulations on the uh, Cleveland Browns winning a uh, winning a playoff football game
2: be right back going to write a five star review <laughs> <laughs>
1: They beat my Pittsburgh Steelers. That's not oh, cool. It is cool.
2: What was the the Steelers were 44 and 6 in the last 50 games in Pittsburgh against Cleveland. I think you can handle a seventh loss in the last 50 years.
1: I I really wasn't I mean, I have a lot of friends that are big Cleveland fans. I wasn't upset. I, it wasn't a great year for Pittsburgh even after the 11-0 start. Sort of a paper tiger thing. Really excited to see what uh What they can do, the the Browns can do against Kansas City. But congratulations, Brennan. We know you're a huge Browns fan, and there really hasn't been anything to celebrate pretty much in your lifetime.
2: None. Nothing at all. Nothing but celebrating 0-16 seasons and having parades for 0-16
1: seasons. So (laughs) I am
2: enjoying it until the Chiefs win by 48 next week.
1: (laughs) I don't know about that. Well, so what we wanted to do is break down, uh, get your thoughts on some of the different recruiting classes. I think one of the suggestions we got on Twitter was also maybe like a sleeper. Um from the class, but we'll yeah, we'll leave it up to you how we want uh, you know, how you kinda wanna do this and, and break things down. I thought probably the best place to start is the you know, the number one spot, Oregon. Uh they have the top spot in the uh in the pack twelve as far as recruiting rankings go, and kind of get your thoughts, uh I start with the ducks. Oh, hold on. It's since we have uh we have this. Oregon Ducks. Nice.
0: Yeah, but like, come on, we gotta we gotta like preamble it for him a little bit, not just like ramble on about this. Oregon, twenty one commits, number one in the Pac twelve, uh what number seven nationally, number six nationally, something like that. They're pretty good. Brandon, give us your thoughts. See, see the yeah. way I did that, Ryan. I like it. That's a that setup is perfect. It
2: looks like a Justin Herbert pass to one of his receivers there. Thank you. I will take the reception and. Yeah, you know, we've talked about this before in recruiting circles. You really see a big jump in your recruiting efforts in the year following a successful season. And I think in year two of Mario Cristobal winning the Rose Bowl, they obviously had reason for optimism with the way their class ended. Signing Justin Flo and Noah Sewell the year before getting Kayvon Thibodeau, but really seeing the bump just in a you know, elongated effort. I think when you look at their 2020 and their 2019 recruiting classes, those ended strong. They had a little bit of fluctuation at times, whereas Oregon jumped out in front really quickly with the 2021 class, really in the fall of 2019, when they got Jackson light to commit, he was a top five center nationally, Keith Brown, the number one player in the state of Oregon committed. And then it just really continued all the way down the stretch. There's still a few guys are in the mix for, but I think if you look at their recruiting efforts this year, you know, they benefited from a couple things. One, obviously, winning a Rose Bowl Uh, certainly help with the 2021 but I think an underrated aspect of what they did is this was the first year that the NCAA had a dead period in the month of February and I think in retrospect I think the NCAA would probably wish they had that back and I know coaches would because March 15th is when everything shut down but in that two-week span from March 1st to March 15th Oregon had a number of high-profile recruits on campus and they signed a number of those including Troy Franklin who was the top receiver in the state of California who visited on March 1st. They had a junior day that weekend as well. I'm sorry, his was actually March 8th. Uh, They had a junior day that weekend. And for four or five days before the pandemic shut down, Oregon had Troy Franklin on campus. They had Ty Thompson on campus, literally as the NCAA was shutting the recruiting down in the country. And that was the quarterback that they signed. So getting a key number of guys to be able to visit and then the NCAA shutting things down from March 15th until really indefinitely Oregon was the last visit that a lot of recruits out West was able to take. So I think there was a perfect storm for them. And you look at their class, they feel the need at quarterback. They feel the need on the offensive line. You know, they, they're, they're, there's a real strength on their, in their recruiting class. You, they get a you know top 40 passer in Ty Thompson, but they sign five receivers. They signed four offensive linemen, including the top tackle out West in Kingsley Sui Mataiya, the top interior lineman out West. In Jackson Light, they got two very good tight ends uh, that are part of that five-receiver class uh, in Terrence Ferguson out of Colorado, Maliki Mataval out of Nevada, and then receivers like Dante Thornton to go with Troy Franklin. Even losing a receiver late, uh, I I think they have to be really pleased with their pass-catching haul. And they look over to the defensive side. They did a really good job at linebacker. They did a really good job in the secondary. I think, to me, what's the most notable thing about this class is... They got three of the top five players in the state of Arizona. I mean, Arizona has been bleeding their top players to other Pac-12 schools for years. And, you know, not just the Pac-12, to other schools, period. The weekend of the Big 12 and Pac-12 championship game, all four quarterbacks involved in that game were Arizona products, not one of those four players played for an in-state school and Oregon has really made a living in the state of Arizona the last few years getting the number one player in Ty Thompson, the number two player in Bram Walden, and the number five player in Jonah Miller. So if you look at what Oregon has done is they took care of their home, they got the top player in their state, went to California got five players, went to Arizona, got four players, and then the other thing that they did is they went into Utah and got three top players there Uh, a year after they got the number one player in the state in no with Sewell, they go back to the state and get Sewell's teammate Kingsley mataiya plus the number two player in the state in Jackson Light. So I think that's one of the most remarkable things of what Oregon is doing is what kind of impact they're having in the entire Pac-12 footprint.
1: Look um, at the. Oh, go, oh,
0: you go ahead. You look you at go the ahead because I took your first question, so you just go ahead.
1: Yeah, look at the class, Brandon. Um, not a five star there, but I mean, you're talking about five of the top. 100 players in the country, 100 national players, uh, you know, 5% of those guys. That's pretty good. The two top offensive tackles on the West Coast. uh, And just, you know, you look down the list, four-star, 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 just so many four-star highly ranked guys. I mean, this just seems like, you know, they're taking recruiting to another level there at Oregon. They had the top class in the Pac-12 last year, but this looks more like a top five kind of class putting together.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the things that when you talk to Oregon commits, what they keep saying is that, you know, Coach Cristobal is trying to bring an SEC approach to recruiting, trying to bring an SEC style program to the Pac-12. And that's why you see a national reach in this class with players from North Carolina, from Texas, from New York, from Mississippi, two players from Maryland. They're not just settling and on the West Coast, like Alabama, where Chris Ball is at before, they're recruiting nationally, and they're a national brand. I think that's made them attractive to a lot of national programs, and they're getting elite players. From these national schools, from these states that are on the other side of the country, you know, getting a guy like Dante Thornton, who's the number two player in the state of Maryland, you know, going down to Mississippi and getting a top three player in Isaiah Brevard, going out to New York to get Seth McGee. Now, he's not your most conventional New York recruit. He's actually from Southern California, originally played at Greats Brethren as a freshman, played at Narbonne. At one point, was that Corona Centennial before moving back east. Uh, but he's another player. He's ranked number one in the state of New York. They went out to Maryland to get Damon David as well to go along with Dante Thornton. So I think what's the most you know, significant part of their recruiting efforts is that they're not just satisfied getting the top players in the West. is That they're not afraid to go head-to-head with ACC and SEC and Big Ten schools to get those same players. And that's how you make a top five class, by having a national presence.
0: In, in terms of kind of that recruiting profile, I'm looking at it, and Oregon in the last four years has had top 15 recruiting classes every single year, and in two of those years has had top 10 classes. Do you get the sense now—obviously, um, a lot of that's been with Mario Cristobal—but um, do you get the sense now that Oregon has evolved into—just the school itself has evolved into a recruiting brand that can— I don't know, maintain something akin to this level of recruiting, even if they, you know, even if Cristobal eventually does move on to whatever SEC school offers them in a couple of years or or what have you, whatever happens. Um, yeah. Do you think the the brand itself is elevated to that point?
2: I do. And I think the big part of that is, is that when you look at the kids that are in these 2021 well, recruiting classes, the 2022 recruiting classes, even the 2020 recruiting class, when those guys were becoming impressionable youngsters, middle schoolers that were probably playing youth football at the time, they were watching the Marcus Mariota Oregon Ducks, or they were watching before that, the, the Anthony Thomas, Kenyon Barner, the Michael James Oregon Ducks. So for the last 10 years, it saved a disastrous 2016 season that cost Mark uh, – what's my guy's name? Uh, Mark Elfridge, uh, the head coaching job, uh, they, you know, even though he played for national championship two years before – If they've watched football for the last decade, they will have seen a team win multiple Rose Bowls, playing two national championship games in the last 11 years, have a Heisman Trophy winner, have a top-five draft pick, have an Outland Trophy winner. So it's become a national brand. And for a lot of these guys, that was the Oregon that they watched. You Keep in mind, one of the most prominent youth football teams – in Southern California, it's called the IE Ducks. I mean, they took the Ducks name. And so these kids have been dreaming of wearing an Oregon uniform Or there's three or four players that they signed this year that played in the IE Ducks program, and now they're going to be Oregon Ducks. And that was kind of the, the mountaintop for those guys playing as youth. So I think it's definitely become a national brand. And I think they're, they've been that way for at least the last five to seven years because of the success of 10 years ago when Chip Kelly really had it cooking. And I think it's, you know, it's able to withstand that they have really only had a couple, one or two mediocre classes in the last 10 years, uh, despite having a coaching change after one guy was there for one year and having another coaching change uh, off a guy who maybe didn't have the recruiting energy that Mario Cristobal had in in Helfrich. I think that they certainly plastered themselves as a national brand though.
1: All right, uh, let's move on to it's the number three ranked team in the Pac-12, California Golden Bears, <laughs> nationally ranked uh, number 25. So top 25 class first time since 2011, I believe, for Cal with uh, 18 players signing uh, letters of intent for Justin Wilcox. What do you got on the Bears, Brandon?
2: I, I love their class. I think this is one of the best classes that they've had. It's certainly one of the highest-rated classes they've had in a decade since Jed Tedford was there and since Tedford was still really recruiting on an elite national level that coincided with when Tasha Poy was still at California. I would like this class for what they did in Northern California especially. I think if you look back at one of the most glaring holes that Sonny Dyke really had when he was at Cal was his inability to recruit – not just the state of California, but most importantly, his inability to recruit Northern California. You look at how many players are featured prominently. I mean, shoot, in the, in the semifinals two weeks ago, you had a quarterback from Northern California starting for Notre Dame. You had an All-American left guard who grew up you know, in the backyard of Berkeley in Aaron Banks. You had an All-American running back in Najee Harris who another East Bay kid. And I think that if you look back at what Justin Wilcox inherited, it was a lot of guys with very little California ties. And so he made his staff very prominent with California, with West Coast recruiting ties, whether it was Marcus Tuyasasopo and Peter Sermon, who had Northwest ties, but both had recruited in Southern California when they were at USC or UCLA. You have, uh, you know, recruiters like Burl Toller, who's a Cal alum, who's an East Bay product out of Bishop O'Dowd in Oakland, but it spent time in Central California. You look at what his staff had had; it had a lot of coaches that knew the entire Western footprint. You know, uh, Charlie Regal, who coached it, was a, uh, was a high school coach in Arizona. You look at some of the better players that. You know, Arizona's or that Cal's had on their defense, they had been players that came out of Arizona, like Brett Johnson and Charlie Regal having the ties into Arizona. And we talked about how the state of Arizona has been bleeding. You know, he had been at Arizona, then came to Cal with Wilcox, and immediately Cal's recruiting efforts in the state of Arizona improved. And so it was important that he got the Western footprint kind of taken care of that Dykes ignored. But more importantly, they really made Northern California a priority. I think they had four players from the Bay Area that they signed in this class, all from the East Bay, and another three or four that were from the Sacramento area. And most importantly, they landed a kid out of De La Salle High School, La Hearns. Why is that important? Because... His, very, his family is very connected in the East Bay, in the De La Salle, Pittsburgh football community. And he's kind of a Pied Piper, where he plays for the KT Prep 7-on-7 program. And there is a very talented group of East Bay prospects in the 22 and 23 classes that look up to La Magia. And that could end up being one. He's not their highest-rated recruit, but he may be their most significant recruit they signed in this class. So they did a really good job in making the state of California. And it wasn't just Northern California. They ended up grabbing three four-star prospects uh, out of Southern California as well. Maven Anderson, Derek Wilkins, both out of Orange County. Uh, They did still a little bit of national recruiting. They had one player from Minnesota in Bastion Swinney, who was a four-star offensive lineman. They also had a player from Texas, but the majority of this class was West Coast and 11 of them. Over half their class was from California, and I think if Wilcox can continue to sustain recruiting in the Golden State, that's only going to bring success to Cal.
0: Um, looking at their you know, top four recruits, at least in the composite, all offensive guys, um, and Cal's offense this year was dreadful? Uh, what's a good adjective? What do we think? Awful? Terrible, putrid, dreadful, whatever. Horrendous. How about... They were ferocious? There we go. That's the word I wanted. Um, I,
2: I just like to think of the, the text that I would get from you or Blair about certain things in previous games where you'd say poopy.
0: Yes. Yes. Poopy. Poopy would be a good <laughs> adjective for this one. Um, so I, I guess the question is, how many of these guys or any of these guys or who among these guys do you think has particularly on the offensive end, has the potential to be relatively immediate in their impact. And I'm, I'm actually asking a little bit about quarterback because I was not impressed mm-hmm. with Chase Garbers in that offense this year, but even receiver or tight end.
2: Yeah. Well, and if you look at their top three rated players, they are receivers or tight ends. Jay Michael Stewart against the highest rated recruit that Justin Wilcox has signed since he's been at Cal, got him out of Texas. He picked Cal over LSU, Oklahoma, and UCLA on the 4th of July, and that was huge for Cal because... In recent years, they weren't in the mix for guys that were considering LSU and Oklahoma. And they had been losing to UCLA for out-of-state recruits. But they were able to get J. Michael Stewart event. And then the biggest win, I think, of their recruiting cycle, even though he wasn't as highly rated as Stewart event, it's got to be Jermaine Terry. I mean, here's a kid who grew, who's grown up 10 miles from the Cal campus. And he comes from a school that had two previous Cal commits who both ended up at UCLA when it was all said and done, Kenny Walker and Tack McKinley. So Jermaine Terry's got a precedent at his school of Kennedy high school stars leaving, but staying in state, he had the opportunity to go pretty much anywhere in the country. He wanted Had had offers from Alabama, from Florida, from Ohio state, from Michigan, from Oklahoma, picked Cal in February and then stayed with it down the stretch. Arizona state made a huge push to try to flip him and ultimately he decided to stay with his heart and stay home. And that's a big win because it was basically a two win, a double win to keep him after getting him the first time over all those national schools. And then to hold them off from a PAC 12 school, that was big. And I think he's the kind of guy that, you know, will fit in that offense quickly. And one of the big reasons he picked Cal was that Bill Musgrave planned to use the tight end much more. Maven Anderson's a speedster out of the mission Viejo program. That, I think, brings another dimension uh, that Stewart Evans kind of lower, that big physical receiver with Maven Anderson, more that speedy guy. But, you know, to answer your question, Dave, Kai Milner, that is a guy that I will not be surprised if he's in the mix. Even though Chase Garbers is coming in as a, what, a third-year, maybe a a fourth-year, three-and-a-half-year starter, Kai Milner is going to have an opportunity to win that job. And a big part of that was he was hand-picked by Bill Musgrave. He was the only quarterback Cal offered since Musgrave was hired And basically, they focused in on him from the second he was offered and really made him the guy that they wanted to get. What's interesting is that his same school has had a number of players that have gone on. And, you know, the quarterback that he replaced a few years before uh, out in Arizona was Spencer Brash, who came from the exact same high school, Higley High School. And so, you know, you've got a guy now in Kyle Milner who might even have a chance to pass up the guy he replaced at Higley High School and start over him as a true freshman because this is a guy that Bill Musgrave himself wanted.
1: For uh, this class, Brandon, you look at last year, uh, ranked 8th in the Pac-12, 39th overall. This one, all the way up to 3 in the Pac-12 and 25th overall, like we said, top 25 ranking first time since 2011. You know, the Bears went 8-5 in 2019. You know, four wins to start the season, had one against Ole Miss, lose the next four, and then, you know, win, winning three of the last four, including the bowl game, um, you know, was that just like kind of a positive enough season that you could boost the rankings up? This? like What was the reason for the the kind of big jump for the, the Bears uh, in the recruiting rankings? I
2: think it was stability. I think really what's, what it was was the stability. I mean, yes, they lost Bo Baldwin and Nick, uh, Oh, goodness. Nick Edwards. I'm blanking on every coach's name today. Uh, They lost them in the offseason to Cal Poly. Bill Ball took the head coaching job. And Steve Greatwood, a legendary offensive line coach, retired. And so what does Justin Wilcox replace them with? Aristotle Thompson, who done a fantastic job running the recruiting efforts at Cal Poly, for several years but he was a uh, former grad assistant at boise state was from portland had northwest ties and then angus mcclure who was a fantastic recruiter during his time at ucla brought him on as the offensive line coach so and then marcel yates who has had great success as a recruiter when he was at texas a&m when he was at boise state when he was at arizona so you replace some coaches with some real energetic recruiters and so you take a year where there's some stability you bring in three guys that either have bay area ties Or have very strong Justin Wilcox ties and those are guys that want to be there that were at smaller programs that were at either FCS programs or they were at a group of five programs or they were without a job in the case of Yates and now they get there and there's just that chemistry that that staff had and you put that together with You know, a program that looked to be ascending—they beating Stanford for the first time in ten years, having some players getting—I mean, one one thing you see Cal is very active. They're very active on social media. They've done a really good job of marketing their program and really emphasizing. I think at one point they had the highest salary of NFL players, uh, NFL players in the or players in the NFL. I think Cal had like the highest salary uh, combined dollars of the contracts of former Cal players, largely thanks to Aaron Rodgers' contract, but. I think they did a good job of really capitalizing on that. So you take some stability, you, you take some, you know, now some sustained success, you take a renewed enthusiasm in California. You know, Marshall Charrington, who they just lost to USC to be uh, a recruiting uh, staffer at USC, his alma mater, but had played a key role in what Cal has done the last couple of years. It was like a perfect storm for Cal to really set apart. And going back to what I said about Oregon, Cal had a junior day on the Saturday before the Super Bowl when it was still in January to get around, again, that February dead period. And they had a number of players that ended up committing or signing with them come to that junior day in January. So, again, just the strategy, they didn't know if Worldwide Pandemic was coming, but to just schedule that and to have a very successful junior day in January when a lot of schools were still trying to finish up their 2020 recruiting class for the February signing day, it just showed you that Cal brought a new effort to recruiting.
1: All right, let's move on. We're going to go to the number six team in the Pac-12. Washington Huskies. Uh, Last year, they are number two in the conference, so down a little bit. And also uh, nationally ranked number 33 as of right now. Previously was a top 20 class number 17. 15 signed letters of intent for the Washington Huskies and new head coach, Jimmy Lake.
2: I think if you look at Washington's class, you know, it's a good class, but it's one that kind of could be left wanting for more, largely because they had three top 11 players in the 24-7 sports composite and only landed one of them. One of them uh, was Emeka Egbuka, who signed with Ohio State, and the other is JT Tuibola, who they're not out of it for, but in his top five, I would say it's much more likely to be a top two with the three-pack 12 schools kind of within – Uh, You know, a gap the size of the Grand Canyon between Ohio State, Alabama and those three Pac-12 schools. But that's a a group that, you know, if you would have got two of the three, the entire narrative changes on this class. If you got all three, then it ends up being one of the premier classes in the country because you land the number one pro style quarterback, the number one receiver and the number one player. Now you land just the number one quarterback. But that shouldn't take away from the. Caliber of player that Sam Hewitt is—that shouldn't take away from the rest of the class that Washington signed. I think Washington became a victim, uh, like a couple other Pac-12 schools that had a new coaching staff that didn't get a spring football, that didn't get a you know a normal fall practice schedule, and so there were some questions from guys like Ameka Buka. You know, what kind of offense are they going to run? What's that offense going to look like? By that point, you know, his mind might have already been made up for Ohio State before Washington really had a chance to show what they would do under their offensive coordinator, John Donovan. So I I think Washington fans are a little frustrated with the loss of Emeka Egbuka and the likelihood that they're going to lose JT, but it shouldn't take away that they did land the number one offensive lineman in the Northwest in Owen Prentice, who will end up being a four-year starter assuming they play football this year, out of O'Day High School. They beat Stanford and LSU for him. and He's, I think, the second player that I could think of that in the last five years he committed to Washington after being admitted into Stanford. And the other was Elijah Molden. And obviously Husky fans loved the contributions Elijah Molden made to that program the last four years. So Owen Prentice was a big pickup. Sam Heward obviously was gigantic. He committed to Jimmy to, to Chris Peterson. Uh, in fact, in Bush Hamden in November of 2018, stayed loyal for those two years. And there were other schools trying. There were other schools really trying hard to flip them. But he stuck with his family's alma mater. His mom went there. His dad went there. His uncle played there. His grandfather played there. You know, he's a third generation Husky football player and a pretty damn good quarterback to boot. So you look at those two guys, they still got two of the top five players in the state of Washington, uh, another top two other top 10 players in the state in Jabez Dene uh, out of Kennedy Catholic, who was Sam Heward's receiver and will lot to out of Bethel. Plus they got a top 10 tight end or top 10 Juco prospect the number, two Juco, or the number one Juco tight end, Quentin Moore, who was originally from Washington, played at Inglemore High School not far from Husky Stadium. He's coming back. And they went into California and get some key players like Dyson McCutcheon, Zachary Spears, uh, out of two traditionally strong programs in Bishop of Mont and Loyola High School separately. And I think if you look at their class, if you can get past the loss of Egbuka and JT, there's some really talented players in this class on the offensive and defensive sides of the ball
0: uh go so this is a class of um 15 guys um is is it done and if not are they are they still looking around is are they leaving stuff open for the transfer market or was this just an unusual situation where they only had you know a limited number of scholarships to give
2: yeah i think you know and you see how many guys are coming back this year i mean obviously they didn't lose they didn't have quite the attrition that i think maybe some expected but I don't think this was ever going to be a huge class. I think next year their class will be up closer to that 25 range because they're going to have a larger number of graduates after next year. Um, But that's why I think there is a lot of angst with the Husky fans because it wasn't a big class, but it had the chance to really outkick its total number of signees with the caliber of players that they got. So I think you're going to see, you know, it's the 2022 in-state offensive line crop. There's seven power five Offensive lineman in the state, Scott Huff has traditionally had has traditionally been one of the better offensive line recruiters nationally. He may not even have to leave the Evergreen State to pull in four or five offensive linemen, and I think you know they could bounce back next year with a really good in-state crop and really take care of a problem that the Pac-12 has had for years, and that's keeping top prominent offensive linemen in the Pac-12 footprint. But more importantly, there's a lot of Pac-12 linemen that are staying in the Pac-12 footprint, but they're leaving their state, Washington might be able to knock out two birds with one stone if 2022 ends up bringing them some of those key in-state linemen that maybe 2021, the, the feeling of, what's the word, the, the feeling of just wanting a little bit more with the Mecca and JT, I think they can really wipe that problem away and wipe that feeling away with the renewed effort in 2022 with his in-state linemen.
1: So looking at the top of the class, you know, four guys are – you know, top one hundred players, one five star guy and Sam Heuer, you mentioned. Uh any of those three star guys though that kind of make up the bulk of this class, anyone that you feel like maybe is you know, highly underrated, has a lot of upside, kind of a sleeper for uh your know, for Jimmy Lake?
2: Yeah, I think the guy that I'm probably the most intrigued by is Robert Worsh. He's still relatively new to the game of football and he's 6'7", 270, and, and you know has a frame and, and a body that could end up Really being a you know pretty competent and you know talented offensive lineman with a couple years of development, Uh, so I'm really intrigued by him on the offense side of the ball. But the name that probably is the most intriguing is Maurice Hines, and he's super intriguing because he still hasn't played a down of varsity football. He's originally from Germany, moved to the U.S. when he was a sophomore. Was at a couple schools on the East Coast before finally settling in at Santa Margarita in the Trinity League. But because of his transfer rule and it being ruled an athletically motivated transfer, he was forced to play JV football last year for Santa Margarita. So he has not played a down of varsity ball, but he's 6'5", 230. He had offers from, you know, really all over the U.S., including Penn State. I saw him at the Under Armour camp back in February. He would blow by offensive linemen and get past them. But then he would go back to the lineman to engage with them, to let them block him because he's still relatively raw. He's only been playing the game for a couple of years and he's still new to football, but the physical upside, I mean, he, you just can't, you don't find a lot of six foot five, 240 pounders. This through the game with so few bad habits. So he's a guy that I expect will probably redshirt for a year, learn how to play the game a little bit more under Pete Krakowski and Jimmy Lake. But a guy with extreme amounts of upside because he's just so new to the game, but bursting and boiling over with, with untapped upside.
1: All right, Brandon, let's move on to our next uh, class. We're going to go to the PAC 12 North number nine ranked team. Stanford (laughs) Cardinal. And Stanford has 15 players in the class. Eight have signed. Letters of intent and other seven are commits. Uh, another team like Washington that dropped uh, previously number three last year in the PAC 12 down at number nine uh, right now. And then nationally number 54 for a Stanford Cardinal. And last year was a uh, t- you know t- number 21 uh, in the in the country.
2: This is a weird Stanford class because in years past when you saw Stanford involved with the kid, you usually felt pretty good about Stanford. Landing said kid. And then this year, you have a class where there was a number of players that were admitted into the university who ultimately picked a different school. You have other cases where, you know, Stanford quarterback recruiting has been, what's the word? Interesting. We'll call it that, (laughs) to to be, for lack of a better term. It's a class that has had a Davis Mills, who was the number one quarterback in the country before injuries just really derailed what should have been a pretty promising career at Stanford. And you saw signs of it at times this year, uh, but the injuries never fully let him be what he could have been. Then you have a year where they get a Jack West and a Tanner McKee, and they have to wait for McKee to come back from his LDS mission. West looks in over his head at times when he's in there. So what do they do in the 2021 cast? Well, they have a quarterback who started one game as a quarterback as a varsity quarterback. And that's, Ari Patu, who has packed 12 ties. His father, Saul, played at Oregon. His brother, Oren, plays at Cal. Ari is a ridiculously talented quarterback, but what he's lacked is experience. In his freshman year, he backed up Michael Johnson Jr., who was at Sheldon High School then. His sophomore year, family moved to Seattle, settled in at Rainier Beach, looked like he was ready to take over the reins and in the second game of the season, broke his leg, and he was out for the year. His junior year, his family moves to Sacramento, and he goes to Folsom High School, where he was easily the most talented quarterback of the school, but instead a guy who had waited his turn for three years to be the starter was a starter. So Ari Pottu had 16, 17 offers with one start under his belt, a lot of talent, a lot of upside, but he has very limited reps as a starting quarterback. And so that's what Stanford's going with in this class. And, you know, hopefully they, they play football in California so we can see Ari in action, but you know, there's not, the elite star power that we've been used to in the last few Stanford classes, where they get a top 100 guy or two, uh, you know, a class that's full of all-Americans. This is kind of a blue-collar class, if you will, and you know, maybe this is what Stanford needs. They've had a lot of players that were highly rated end up in the transfer portal in the last few years, whether it's a grad transfer, whether it's, you know, they just didn't feel the fit there. Some guys that have left early. Some guys that left before they were probably ready. You know, maybe this is the class that kind of gets back to the basics that Stanford really thrived with under Jim Harbaugh and early on in David Shaw before they started becoming a recruiting juggernaut. But it's a unique class in that there isn't one superstar that you can say, oh, this guy is going to be really good. What they do have is a lot of really good high school players that if they can make that transition to being really good college players, Stanford can continue to show that 2019 was just an anomaly.
0: You're an incredible diplomat, like truly incredible. You're like, you know, this might turn out great. You know, a lot Mm -hmm. of under the radar guys, a lot of good high school performers. But like you help with these rankings. Like, is this the worst Stanford class uh, in like 15 years? Because that's what it looks like to me.
2: Yeah. I mean, because we've been used to the Stanford classes in the last few years that have. I mean, It wasn't but. Five years ago, four years ago, where they signed Walker Litter, Foster Serrell, and Davis Mills, three of the top ten players in the country. A year ago, you know, they got E.J. Smith, who's Emmett Smith's son. They got Miles Hinton. They went big on the NFL bloodlines, but they had, you know, four or five All-American type of players. The year before that, Austin Jones, Tristan Sinclair. I mean, they, uh, we're used to seeing Stanford kind of have their pick, and if they were in on a guy, they usually got the guy. You know, in years past, they'd go out of state. They would go across the country and get elite prospects who had pretty remarkable recruiting sheets and get them. This year just seemed to be a little bit more off, if you will. And I think. You know, Stanford, it's such a unique university. We, we know that. They have different academic requirements than the rest of the country. And they are another one of those schools that thrive off of getting kids to campus and getting a feel for the school and a feel for the professors and the academic side of things. And they lost that ability. And so this class kind of reflects what is a unique recruiting cycle with, you know, not a lot of star power.
1: Um, this is for you to say this is like an, it was an interesting Stanford class. They all seem to be very interesting in their own way. Um, last year, I think David did a pretty good job of predicting the downfall of the Stanford Cardinal. And then all these players were leaving the transfer portal, but they still signed this really great class, you know, number 21 in the country. It seems like players are still like leaving. They turned things around though, on the field, you know, winning their last three games, you know, Cal Washington, Oregon state all on the road. Cause they couldn't, practice in their, you know, in their own County anymore, all this adversity. And they still go out and they look like a, a much better team, at least in the second half of this shortened season. But then to have no recruit, like the recruiting fall off a cliff, it just seems like you can't, it's like, you can't have everything at once. I don't know. It seems like last year should have been a worse recruiting class and this year should have been better. And it's reversed. I, I, it's just hard for me to understand how Stanford's going up and down on the field and also in recruiting.
2: Well, let's not act like the park that they were practicing in or some crappy park in the middle of Fresno, with all due to respect to your listeners, from Fresno. <laughs> I mean, they put an ice skating rink in that park that I've taken my kids to in numerous years. It's a very nice park, one of the finest public parks that you'll find. So Stanford still had nice parks to practice in. It wasn't like they were practicing in a park with a bunch of potholes, which are <laughs> some of the things that they've been stepping in on the recruiting trail the last couple of years is misevaluations And – That's been one of the things that I think has really hurt Stanford in the last couple of years is that they just had misevaluations at key positions where they needed guys and they signed guys that they thought were going to be better than they were, plugged them in, put them into play, and they weren't quite ready for prime time. But you saw over the course of the second half of the 2020 season – they looked a lot more like the Stanford we were used to, but you know, where was the Simi Fahoko usage early in the season? So there were some questions about, you know, the personnel usage, but that same thing can be looked at from a recruiting standpoint is their recruiting evaluations in the last couple of cycles have been off. And I think, you know, Dave, you said I'm being too nice. I'll be kind of a jerk right now. Jack West was a curious recruitment and a curious player that they recruited. And, kind of a weird recruit to ride as that quarterback when they knew that Tanner McKee was still going to be on a serving his LDS mission so they weren't going to get him for two years and really what I think the biggest issue has been has been their quarterback recruiting and their quarterback evaluations because not only did they sign Jack West in 2018 and then Tanner McKee in 2018 though he was recruited as a 2020 quarterback they didn't sign a 2019 quarterback they didn't recruit a 2020 quarterback they had jay butterfield who's now at oregon who's a stanford legacy his dad was a former starting quarterback at stanford who waited and waited and waited for stanford to offer ultimately committed to oregon because stanford was waiting for tanner mckee and then when they have quarterback injuries and quarterback depth issues they didn't have anybody to turn to so i think that right there is probably the most glaring issue with stanford that they've just made some bad evaluations and some misreads at key positions so that even when they had a bad 2019 season and a better 2020 season, I think that they were in somewhat of a hole and in somewhat of a rut when it comes to recruiting. And I think that when you look at the recruit, and we talked about it earlier in the show with Oregon. You know, when you have a season that you go 4-8, and eight, now you've got to convince that 2021 class that 2019 was an anomaly. And instead of getting that one bump, you might have gone the other way where Stanford maybe suffered from the fact that they went 4-8. and eight, to the point that a lot of guys were a little bit skeptical of the program.
1: All right. Um, Always interesting with David Shaw. Let's go on to our next team. Washington State Cougars. Uh, Since they're they're 10th in the Pac-12, we're giving them the meow instead of the roar. Uh, Number 10 in the Pac-12, that's what they were. Uh, Last season, 19 players have signed uh, letters of intent plus another commit. And right now, uh, nationally ranked, 58th uh, last year was 55. So pretty consistent from year to year. But we're going to see, you know, you're hoping to see some sort of bump with Nick Rolovich and uh, looking like he's taking this team in the right direction. But what are your thoughts on the, the Cougars, Brandon?
2: I You know, I mentioned this earlier with Washington and not having the ability to get guys on campus and with a new coaching staff, even worse than what Jimmy Lake had experienced, you know, Nick Rolovich. And the only other coach that had a harder road to hoe was Colorado with Carl Durrell getting hired after signing day. But, you know, Nick Rolovich gets hired in mid-January. He has to put the final touches on their 2020 class before he can really turn his attention to the 2021 class. And they were gearing up to have a number of junior days, to have a couple of camps on the western part of the state, to have camps on their own campus. And they were really hoping to pull a bunch of players into Pullman to visit the school and visit the campus and see the facilities and get to know this new staff. And then the pandemic shut that all down. And so a lot of their best plans that they had set for the spring that they thought was really going to rejuvenate their recruiting efforts were basically snatched away from them. So considering all of that, I still like what Washington state did in this class. And I think, you know, getting a, you know, a quarterback like Xavier Ward, who with a quarterback, Jaden Delore, that they already had, you know, Xavier Ward can be a little bit more of a developmental project. Um, he, there's no need for him to be able to play right away. Uh, they got one of the top JUCO players in the country, and CJ Moore. They've got good linebackers and, and DBs in this class. I like what they did. Uh, a couple players that Nick Rolovich recruited their older brothers to Hawaii, Jaden Hicks and Christian Hilborn, both those guys, their older brothers played for Rolovich at Hawaii. So in a year where they lost the ability to go on the road, those relationships became key. And, and one of the biggest ones in terms of relationships is Francisco Maui who is out of American Samoa, but played his junior year and sophomore year at, at Aquinas High School in San Bernardino. Well, why is he so big? Well, his older brother, Frank, uh, Fred, was a starting center for Washington State for three years. Francisco is a... Really good linebacker, but their youngest brother Francis is the number one player on the west coast in the 2023 class. Now, does that mean because his older two brothers went to Washington State, he will no, especially when this kid's got you know 15 to 20 offers from all of the national programs? But does it hurt that his two older brothers both played at Washington State or signed with Washington State? Absolutely not. And if there's one thing about that family, it's that they're extremely tight. So getting Francisco Maui Goa wasn't just a a boon to their 2021 recruiting efforts. It could give them an unprecedented recruit in 2023 if the family ties are that strong. So I like what they did, given that they didn't just have a lot of opportunity to really show their school off to people. And it's not like with Washington or Oregon where they're a little bit more accessible. So Washington was able to get a bunch of recruits on campus In January, right after Jimmy Lake took over, Oregon had a junior day the weekend before the pandemic. Washington State's off the beaten path. So kids don't necessarily go out of their way to go to Washington State, and it would have had to be with a purpose. So when they lost that, I think considering they lost that, they still have to be relatively pleased with their efforts in this class.
0: Um, Obviously, Washington State is almost certainly never going to be a top-tier Pac-12 recruiting program from just because of the reasons you just said with regard to the pandemic, but just generally it's, it's not a very accessible location and, you know, just population bases. Uh, that said, obviously I think they need to maybe recruit a little bit better than they did whatever the last 10, 15 years um, from your sense of Nick Rolovich uh, before here be, at Hawaii, I think at Nevada, where, all of his different stops. Um, what, impact do you see him making in recruiting once things settle down and get back to normal do you think he can push washington state to i don't know a consistently top eight recruiting program in the pac-12 and um if so what is that going to look like what pipelines can he tap into um is there a you know potential to get more hawaii and more you know american samoa that sort of thing what's what's what what do you think the future looks like for washington state recruiting
2: I think it's promising. And I think because of what you just said, you know, the ties into America, Samoa, the ties into the islands from when he was at Hawaii, the ability like he closed in 2020 um, with a defensive lineman from Samoa who nobody knew about. And he ended up signing from Pago Pago American Samoa. We saw him at the Polynesian Bowl last year. I mean, he looked like an NFL guy when AJ Epinesa and Tua Tonga Bailoa came at the end of the week, you saw Fa Moe next to Epinesa, and it was hard to tell who was the guy coming out to be an NFL draft pick and who was a senior in high school. He's got ties into the islands that – few schools had. Now, Joe Salavea at Oregon has obviously ties to Samoa being from there, uh, but I think Rolovich has not just coaches there, but a lot of these kids have played or have family members play for Rolovich at Hawaii, and now there's the opportunity to go play in the Pac-12 that's really hard for these guys to pass on. So I think given his ties in Hawaii, but then also he's a Bay Area guy. You know, He came from the same high school, Marin Catholic, that Jared Goff played. He's got assistant coaches on his staff that have ties to Southern California, that have ties to Northern California, that have ties to the Northwest. And it's not like Mike Leach's staff where when he lost some of his key assistants in years past, he replaced them with guys that were from the South or the Southwest, This Nick Rolovich staff is largely made up of guys with West Coast ties. So I think that Washington State, if they can just recruit their own state better than Mike Leach, did and actually just try to show a pulse in the state of Washington. They're never going to be consistently Washington head to head for in-state recruits. But it's the second tier recruits that they should be continuing to focus on that Mike Leach didn't even want to bother with that I think where Rolovich can really get some traction in recruiting.
1: The, uh, you look at the, the top players in the class, six of the top eight guys are defensive players. Um, you know, you know, Rolovich is an offensive guy, but maybe speak to that, where it sounds like he, he is taking that side of the ball and maybe some of the aspects that were neglected under uh, Mike Leach, he's taking those a little more seriously.
2: And I think that that's something that you really need to do when you're there is you've got to focus on the entire football program, the entire depth chart, all positions, not just offensive not just getting signing seven receivers i mean it's one of those things where yeah maybe skill position players are a little more sexy to the average fan but your recruiting class is going to need its share of defensive players and its linemen and its defensive linemen and its offensive linemen and i think that you know rolovich has a pretty good defensive coordinator and a rising star, in my opinion, in the in the industry, in Jake Dickert. And I think that's why you saw such a renewed effort up front. You know, Dickert's a, a linebacker coach at the heart. And I think if you look at this class that you see, there was a renewed effort in that front seven to get guys that can play. But at the same time, if you look at Washington state's offense this year, there wasn't a Gabe Marks type. There wasn't a, uh, you know, a Desmond Patton or a, uh, the receiver that they had from City College of San Francisco was his name. I forget Laura. I'm forgetting everybody. I'm getting old. Uh, but the the receiver that they had a year ago, they didn't have like an explosive big play receiver that really scared offenses this year. They had some good solid receivers, so they'd go out and get a CJ. Moore, who was a top two hundred player when he signed with Oklahoma State out of high school and in a great offense at at Oklahoma State. And he recognized that there still is a need for some key players and some key contributors on the offensive side of the ball but I think from a just a pure philosophical standpoint he knew that there was a need in that front seven and so he goes and gets nine players that are either defensive linemen or linebackers that shows a guy who recognizes his depth chart and does some really good internal scouting and said we need to get things shored up at some key positions here quickly.
1: All right, our last team in the Pac-12 North, and we're going to need some explanations here, Brandon. We have Oregon State Beavers. Right now, dead last in the Pac-12 rankings, and 115th nationally, 50 places behind number 11, Arizona, the next worst class in the Pac-12. Only eight letters of intent were signed. Uh, Four transfers are coming in. Well, what's going on here, Brandon? We thought Jonathan Smith was building something here. This is not looking like a a recruiting class you're going to build upon.
2: Well, yes and no, because I think that Oregon State is making it a point to really hit the transfer portal hard. And I think that we've seen what they've done with the transfer portal in previous years, where they've gotten guys like a Tyjohn Lindsey, Dave's big fan of Tristan Jebby. I know he's a longtime fan of him. Uh, so there's another guy that they went into the portal for. But I think that what we've seen with Oregon State is that they realize maybe it's a little bit more difficult to get players to come to Oregon State out of high school. So what do we do? Well, now we maybe have to hit the portal harder because at that point you're dealing with guys that aren't necessarily looking for the unimportant things like the best community atmosphere, the best college life, the best uniforms, the best facilities – they're now realizing they're one more transfer away from irrelevance and maybe never fulfilling their dreams of playing at the next level. So they're taking this recruiting process a little more serious this time through. And I think that what Oregon State's going to continue to do is, Find guys that are in the transfer portal that have the ability to play in the Pac-12, but maybe needed a different reason this time around to be convinced that Oregon State was the best spot for them. And by doing so, I think that they're finding guys, and especially I know that it was shelved earlier this week, uh, but I think that there's going to be a renewed effort to get the one-time transfer rule passed. And once that's done, I think you're going to see Oregon State really hit the portal hard this offseason to find guys that are more quicker ready needs so that they can fill some of those positions. Remember when Jonathan Smith got hired, you were coming off a really, really ugly departure from Gary Anderson. And it kind of ruined their recruiting efforts where you had the the coach that was the interim coach at the time offering guys that maybe weren't necessarily Oregon State caliber players, but trying to get himself – the job and understandably so, um, you know, trying to hire or assign guys that he thought would be good fits for him. But I think Jonathan Smith had to do such a huge job of cleaning up the recruiting efforts that Gary Anderson left him that it took him a while. So he made it a point to hit the transfer portal, which kind of coincided right about with the time that he took over as the head coach. And that's been kind of a a moving project and moving target since.
0: So it's interesting because I know, um, you know, too, uh, UCLA is at least looking to supplement its class in a similar way, but certainly not building the entire class around it. And Oregon State seems to be doing this to a much greater extent. What's your sense looking at other programs nationally? is, Is Oregon State like the one program doing this or are there a lot? And in that vein, do you think the transfer market is going to suddenly get Um, maybe a little bit competitive the same way high school recruiting has gotten insanely competitive?
2: I I 100% believe that the transfer market is going to be just as busy, if not busier more than ever. I mean, obviously we're in unprecedented times. We have more players in the portal than ever before, but you're going to see more and more schools work out of the portal. And, And here's why. There's a lot of states that Football wasn't played this fall. There's a lot of states that there's no guarantee that football will be played in the spring as part of that typical fall season. So you're California. now expecting California. You're now expecting college coaches to rely solely on junior film. And now keep in mind that you may have some 2022 targets that you are interested in, but they haven't played since their sophomore year. They have missed that key transition spring between their sophomore and junior year. Now they don't have any junior film and you know, or know if we're going to have a senior season. I mean, who knows where we'll be in 10 months from now, nine months from now. But now you're expecting high college coaches to rely on a kid who only has sophomore film. So you're going to find that, hey, at least we're familiar with these guys that are in the portal. These guys are at least 20, 20 year old men rather than 16, 17 year olds who were 15 the last time or 14 the last time they put pads on. There's a little bit more certainty, if you will, with guys in the portal. So I think you're going to see a, a higher amount besides the higher amount of guys going into the portal. I think you're going to see a higher amount of schools focusing on the portal just because there's a little bit more familiarity with guys in the portal.
1: With uh, only the eight guys signed, like you said, Brandon, is They're still for the February signing period, the, the later signing period, the more traditional one. Are there a chance to to bring in a few more guys or is this kind of it for high school players for this class?
2: Well, since my target market that I normally try to be optimistic with is not typically going to be listening to the podcast of champions because they're young and probably watching TikTok, I will say it very candidly. It's going to be very hard for guys to get offers because I've had a number of Pac-12 programs tell me we're done with 2021 kids. We are not even bothering recruiting them. We've moved on. And what that really sucks for is the players in, play in California and in Washington and in Oregon and in Nevada where the season has been played and in Hawaii as well. I mean, there's a very, very strong likelihood that Hawaii doesn't have high school sports period this year. In fact, there's already been some whispers that there was not going to be any football in the state of Hawaii. Uh, and that was supposed to be announced at some point. If that is the case, then I fully expect – you know, the 2021 kids in Hawaii to be done, you know, because if they haven't gotten an offer by now, it's never going to come. And I think that schools are now realizing, again, the portal is going to have plenty of options in it. Let's just stick with the portal.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, a great breakdown of the uh, Pac-12 North teams. We're going to take a break and answer some questions, but there was a tweet from John Wilner. I wanted to get your reaction on. He was researching top teams for 2021 with an eye on the quarterbacks. And he lists, Oklahoma, Georgia, Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State and Ohio State uh, and Iowa State. And all of those quarterbacks are from the West, there are four of them from L.A. and two of them from Phoenix. Is that a that's a that's a Pac-12 problem, I would think.
2: That is definitely a Pac-12 problem. Like I said, when you've got four quarterbacks in the state of Arizona, from the state of Arizona, playing in a Pac-12 championship or Big 12 championship and not one of those guys plays for Arizona and Arizona State, You know, and you look at these other states, the DJs and the Bryce that comes from two USC and UCLA pipeline schools. That's a Pac-12 issue.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll come right back and answer your questions.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy,
1: All right, everyone got to stretch your legs during the break. You all cool?
0: I went for a run. <laughs> to the fridge. <laughs> Grab a beer.
1: Yes. <laughs> I would like to do that right now. Um, hey, we have a voicemail. So you ready for a voicemail, guys? Board We're ready. All right, here we go. What's up,
0: guys? This is Evan from Tempe. Um, I'm a listener of this pod as well as a Ryan's Parasol Podcast, and um. Me and a lot of other fans are pretty fed up with Graham Harrell. And um, I know Ryan's a Graham Harrell fan. And so uh, I know he's had to take a lot of calls and kind of defending Graham Harrell a little bit. Uh, so I just kind of want to know uh, David's take on Graham Harrell. You know, because he's obviously not a fan like me, not someone who covers USC. Like Ryan, just kind of hear his perspective. So if um, you guys could, you know, answer that and then maybe talk about what to expect next season, that would be awesome. So I appreciate you guys. And um, you guys have a great show. Talk to you. Call you back another time. Thank you.
1: Yeah, well, maybe we get both your thoughts on that. If you want to start, Dave, and we'll get Brandon's too.
0: Yeah, um, I think the USC offense took a big step back this year. Um, I, from Watching from the outside, I don't know how much to pin on Harrell himself or if it was just kind of a general you know, just some malaise type stuff. I know there were some injuries in the running back room, um, and I know Keaton Slovis had the kind of weird thing where it may have been injury-related, where the ball was just kind of not coming out of his hand particularly well. But he didn't play anywhere near as well as he did last year. Um, and I thought, you know, the running backs, particularly Step, was not the guy he looked like at times last year. So I think there were some potentially personnel, you know, legit, like, oh, those guys are kind of dinged up, so that's a problem. Um, but also just from like a, a, a look standpoint, and I kind of poo pooed this mid season, but after watching a lot more USC towards the end of the year, um, Michael Pittman might've made that offense just look a lot better than it was, uh, with his ability to win jump balls down the field, um, It seemed like, especially early on in the year, but even like getting in towards the middle parts of the year, so much stuff was once again very hard for that offense. It looked a little bit more like some of those latter stages, Clay Helton offenses before he turned the keys over, where so many of the throws were going to covered receivers uh, who then just had to make plays. Um, You know, just make a play, brew McCoy here. We're going to dump it off to you on the uh, outside, and you've just got to force a guy um, to, you know, get out of the way on your way to the first down. And to their credit, they often did it because they're really talented dudes. Um, but I didn't see as much mastery uh, from the offense as I saw last year. Um, it did look like it was more of a struggle this season. And I think it was twofold. I don't think it was entirely Harold's fault. But I think the uh, the whole complexion of the thing was, was uh, a little bit worse than last year. And I think some of that, whatever extent you want to put it, some of that has to fall on Harold's shoulders.
2: For me, I, I think we're used to seeing, you know, going back to when Lane Kiffin was the head coach there, we're used to seeing kind of the featured usage of one receiver who they just ride and ride and ride. And like Dave said, you know, Michael Pittman obviously was a tremendous part of that offense in 2019. And Slovis really felt comfortable getting him the ball. And it seemed like this year there, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed like there was more of a concerted effort to spread the ball around. So where, there wasn't a feature receiver. I mean, if you have a receiver like a Amon Ross St. Brown or like a Drake London or a Tyler Bonds, maybe you ride one of those guys. And it seemed like in the efforts to spread the ball around, it's kind of like the old phrase. If you don't have one quarterback, if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have one quarterback. And in this case, you had four receivers, but you didn't have one receiver. And maybe because they tried to spread the ball around and they tried to show that, he wasn't a one-ring quarterback in that you know, version of the area. I think that there seemed to be, and coupled that with, was he ever really right physically? The ball didn't seem to have the juice. Even in that first game against Arizona State, there was a couple throws that he had that made you wonder, was he all the way recovered uh, from the injury in the holiday ball? And it just seemed like they were trying to do many different things. I, mean, I think, Dave, if you remember when UCLA tried to do that, Brett Hundley's junior year, where they tried to let him – be focused more as a passer rather than do the things that made him so successful those first two years. And he probably had his worst season as a junior with Slovis. The things that worked so naturally and easily for him, just finding that one receiver and just getting it to him by trying to spread it out a little bit more, he didn't seem to look right at all. And whether that's a Graham Harrell thing, whether that's a Clay Hilton thing, I don't think we'll ever really know. But it just didn't look like the USC offense that the players coming back were capable of really being.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I was someone that would defend Graham Harrell. He, they had a bad year this year. I mean, they were last in the PAC 12 and rushing. Uh, they talked about wanting to run the football. They didn't show it this year. And uh, Clay Helton talked about, Oh, they're running for 170 yards a game after beating Arizona, Arizona state. And they just fell off a cliff. They had five yards rushing against Washington state. There were some major problems here. And that's, it's still a lot better than the gumbo kind of stuff they were running before. But yeah, what, what got, what got to this? Is it a sophomore slump? Something uh, was different. I think they needed a definitive system and they have it. And some people don't like the system because it's more of a, you know, a passing finesse offense, but it was way better than whatever system they had before, but certainly concerning that it took a big step back uh, this year. We'll see what they're you know able to do. They fired Tim Drevno, the offensive line coach, but I don't think that was the, the real problem. I, I mean, it's still Clay Helton coach team. Uh, they have better assistants now than they did a couple years ago, but it's still going to be a Clay and coach team. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I mean, as such, they're going to be very good and overachieve. But <laughs> um, all right. We've got a text message from chony 19. Uh, Happy New Year, guys. Considering the transfer portal is growing and becoming a bigger source of recruiting talent. Do you anticipate recruiting sites like 247 to start a ranking and star system there? That's a good question for Brandon.
1: Yeah, Ryan, wow. go
2: ahead and answer that.
1: That's for you. that's for you, Brandon. Come oh, on.
2: me. You know, I will tell you the, the best way to answer this, and this isn't a political answer. It's one of those where, like, we are now seeing more and more the need to figure out what we're going to do with transfers because they're becoming more prominent. You know, the hard part in a lot of cases is the body of work, how do you evaluate that? Do you go based on what they were in high school or do you go based on what they've done in college? You know, if it's a high profile transfer like a JT Daniels where you had his freshman year where you could evaluate, you know, if it's a high profile recruit like Justin Fields who just didn't get a fair shake because of Jake Fromm, but you know, what kind of talent he is, you know, maybe you have a better idea, but what about the guys who never play? You know, where are you going to get your feedback from the high school coach, you know who thinks his guy was done dirty the college coach who he decided to leave and no longer play for who's probably not going to give you the most fairest accurate assessment you know it's not like we're getting access to the practice films either like we do with showcases and with camps and with game film and all the other opportunities we had to see a high school or a JUCO player so it's one of those that if we can just figure out a way how we evaluate how they're properly evaluated. Then we move to the next step of figuring out a way to factor them into the rankings. But I think with more and more schools going the transfer portal, it's something that we're certainly going to have to figure out sooner rather than later, because there's going to be a large chunk of recruiting classes that are made up with those guys.
1: Yeah. We'll see what they do. Yeah. Right now they're using the high school rankings, but obviously like you said, like the Justin Fields is like a perfect example. Like, if a guy doesn't play, do you drop him down? But you still think he's a five-star talent? Yeah, it's hard to it's, it's hard to have a system for doing all that. But we'll see what what two four seven sports comes up with. Um, we got an email from Frank in Sacramento. He said, "With the Pac twelve so terribly ferocious, man, that's the weirdest spelling I've seen of ferocious last year."
0: There's a lot going on there.
1: There's a lot uh, now, and for some and for a few seasons to come, it may be killing top tier coaches around the country. They have been thinking, quote, USC, please hire me and pay me five million a year, and I could recruit and clean up in that awful conference. Whoever gets the Trojans job next will rocket into the national spotlight in two years. That's Frank in Sacramento on the Pac-12 hitting rock bottom.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's a next year in Jerusalem type thing there from Frank in Sacramento. Yeah, hasn't that been the story the last, like seven times they've hired a coach and their hit rate is what, one? <laughs> <laughs> One out of seven. Uh, cool. Yeah, whoever whoever gets hired there should should clean up in this awful conference or this good conference because it's USC. It should be, and it historically is like a top three job. But keep hiring jokers, and guess what? They're going to keep joking.
1: We're you go bread. back
0: to
2: you go back to the SEC and where they were in the mid two thousands. Remember, we 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 know the SEC now as what they've been for the last fifteen years coinciding with the arrival of urban Meyer. And then two years after that, the arrival of Nick Saban. But remember there was a time where Auburn went 12 and 0 and was left out of the national championship game talk because Oklahoma and USC were playing. I mean, it's hard to believe there was a time where the sec didn't get respect. And what did it take? It took Florida firing Ron Zook and hiring urban Meyer. And then Alabama saying, okay, hold my beer. We're going to go hire Nick Saban and get rid of Mike Shula for the sec across the board to really see an upgrade in coaching hires over the next five to seven to nine years. And you start to see a lot of good hires being made in the conference, but it took two of the more flagship programs in the conference to really right their ship and get their ish together to finally get that program and that, that conference back to where it needed to be. And I'm not saying that you know, USC is going to hire Urban Meyer, he's going to have immediate success at Florida or he's going to have immediate success like he did at Ohio State. But what I'm saying is the conference is very ripe for the taking from a evaluation, from a recruiting standpoint, where it can't get any worse. Now, the flip side to that is I think the expectation that, oh, a new coach at USC is going to convince all these kids to stay. How do you do that when Alabama is playing with Najee Harris in the backfield tonight while Ohio State has Chris Olave and Wyatt Davis such a key part of what they're doing? These West Coast kids have always been open to leading the region to play their college football, but never has it been more obvious that, hey, I can go to these national programs and I could succeed, I can get drafted, I could probably win a national championship while I'm there and have the best possibility of my own player development happen by being at that school. The SEC, the, the, the Pac-12, besides the fact they need some coaches that can really revamp the recruiting efforts, you know, and, and keep those kids home. You've got to win with those guys as soon as you get them there. And so you can't have a two to three year, you know, getting familiar period with that coach. He's got to come in and turn stuff around immediately, much like Pete Carroll did back in the two thousands, but it's never been more difficult to convince a West coast kid. Hey, there's value in staying home right and now. There's so a lot of their, yeah. And well, that's it, it so weird
0: it. because you've got Chip Kelly and Clay Helton manning the two LA based programs. And with coaches like that, who do such a tremendous job, um, it's just weird that they can't get guys to stay home.
2: It, it really is. It really is. <laughs> what if I told you in 2012 that Lane Kiffin and Jim Mora were better, going to have better recruiting efforts than Chip Kelly and Clay Helton <laughs>
0: eight years later? I love it. Uh, that. uh, that's the sound of pain, Brandon. It
1: is. <laughs> Uh, You're going to go next, Dave? I don't know. Should I? Yeah. All right, fine. Get on your game here, man.
0: Uh, Is anybody shocked that Thomas Thomas Larry Scott's most recent email about UCLA's attendance was looking for a window dressing solution for a structural problem? I think you guys should be proud that you now have more direct access to the top echelons of the conference than Wilner. Maybe email him back and get his thoughts on the long-term impact of big tech potentially buying part of the conference we all love. So that's a reference to Thomas's email from last week carrying water once again for Larry Scott uh, from an anonymous text messenger.
1: So, kind of inside baseball jokes there. Yeah, right.
0: very inside baseball. But Brandon, Brandon's a, a sometimes listener.
1: As he a devout Thomas. listener
0: of the podcast of champions,
2: you know, I would say I knew exactly what. I, yeah.
0: I, I didn't. I, I didn't I, we, we barely know, and we 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 did the show last week. <laughs> 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 like if it hadn't referenced Thomas, I would have had no idea what that was talking
1: about. Exactly. And it was, it needs a little more punctuation too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Should we move on to perk? Let's move on to perk. Okay. So he's got four questions here. Uh, one, <coughs> what is the actual slash realistic impact of the sanctions on USC? I've heard the sanctions excuse for just about everything, especially for the 2012 squad that won 10 games the year prior with much of the same players, can,
0: can I can I take a first stab at this?
1: Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we'll get Brandon. I mean, stuff. obviously,
0: huge. They're still affecting them to this day, right? <laughs> like the sanctions. I mean, that's right up there. I mean, honestly, with biggest impacts for the twenty twenty season, it's right up there with not getting an additional twelve hours of notice that Oregon was going to be their opponent in the Pac twelve title game. You can't discount the effect the sanctions are still having and will have. I think continuing for the next twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brandon,
1: your thoughts?
0: <laughs> uh,
2: I won't say it's completely become the the coaches said they're going to use me like they use Reggie Bush, who's my favorite college football player. But no, <laughs> I, I don't hear the sanctions. I, I, is that even still a thing? Are we still having people complain about the sanctions being a thing? Because didn't they win a Rose Bowl and a Pac-12 championship and play for two other Pac-12 championships since the sanctions were lifted? I mean, this isn't SMU, guys. SMU finally recovered from the death penalty. You know, it just took them a while because that pony money was different. But the point being is I didn't know that it was still a thing to say the sanctions were ruining things. I I think we're well past that point in my
1: humblest of opinions. Yeah, I would agree. I I think Lin Swan, you know terrible athletic director brought it up at some point when I think maybe when Clay Helton went five and seven and he was trying to give excuses why he wasn't being fired. I think that, you know, they're still recovering from sanctions. Like I think that was the last time it was used, but that I haven't heard Mike or Anyone mention those. So I don't, I don't think you're going to see sanctions going on forward, but um, his second point was provided he take a year or two off. What would you guys make of Tom Herman UCLA hire if, when Chip Kelly is fired. Uh,
0: um, I, I, so I was all for this. Um, and then I read something just today, actually, about what he did at Texas when he took over. And there's this crazy story that apparently – he would give prime rib to the best players at practice and then, like, lukewarm pancakes and, like, damp food or some crap to the guys who didn't do well at practice. And that's, like, weird, psychotic football coach stuff that makes me think, no, 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 that's not good. So I'm now out on that. Based on performance, no, I think he's actually good. I thought Texas was – I mean – yeah, it's 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 Texas. So they've got crazy expectations, the whole deal. But um, he did you know better there than anybody since well, obviously since Mac Brown, but obviously um, even before that a little bit. Um, so I thought Herman was fine there. I thought he was really good at Houston. So I think, and he's still young. I think he'd be hungry in his next job. But I I reading that I got a little bit of psycho coach vibes.
2: What if Kevin Sumlin was Tom Herman and Tom Herman was Kevin Sumlin?
0: Ooh. Ooh, tell me more.
2: My theory, it's not even so much a theory. There have been a number of Houston, former Houston head coaches that have gone on to power five jobs, but only one really succeeded on the field consistently and throughout that time. But he was an absolute cluster F of a person off of it. And that's, of course, Art Briles. Wow. What if Kevin Sumlin and Tom Herman were just average coaches who parlayed successful runs at Houston. Let's let's be honest. If you're going to look at some of the group of five jobs in college football, location, location, location makes a huge difference. And if you're going to be a very mediocre playing on a Tuesday night with uh, Pam Ward and Anthony Beck calling your game, or you're going to be playing in a power five type of environment on a Saturday night type of group of five, like a UCF, like a Houston. You know, Boise State's kind of the one exception to the rule in that they aren't in a major market for where the talent is going to stay close to home. There's just not that many players recruit. But if you look at a Houston, you look at a UCF, and their success has largely been based on their location and the, the caliber of player that they can get compared to the other group of five schools. So what if Tom Herman was basically Kevin Sumlin, 2.0, and that both took good programs with a few above-average players. I mean, remember Tom Herman was the guy who did convince Ed Oliver, an elite five-star defensive tackle, to stay close to home, and then he left for a job that he wasn't necessarily prepared for. And then maybe his next job, he goes. I mean, at times Kevin Sumlin looked like he forgot how to coach. And this is a guy who there might not have been a more guy who had it going on than Kevin Sumlin circa 2012. After they beat Alabama in Tuscaloosa, after Johnny Manziel won a Heisman Trophy, did the prosperity come too quickly for him there? The same as with Tom Herman at Texas. Did the success happen too early with the we're back, the nipple rubbing thing he did to make fun of Drew Locke in their ball game? Were those guys ever really ready to take that big of a profile job that soon? And were they maybe fools gold because of the success that they had at Houston? that it showed when they got to the power five level, maybe they weren't necessarily elite power five coaches.
1: Yeah. Uh, it would be interesting though, with the expectations, you know, from Texas being so high to go into like a basketball school where no one really cares if the football team is good. So, I mean, I think, I think it could work, Dave. I mean, it sounds like uh, <laughs> it could be a good one. Um, <laughs> third nice. point. Nice. <laughs> the ranking from most to least likely to compete a full season. I'm sorry. To complete a full season next year as a starting quarterback, how would you rank Sam Neuer, uh, Jaden DeLora, Tyler Shook, or Shul, uh Chase Garbers? Um, so who's going to complete the full season? All
0: right. First first, first, note, I would say Sam Neuer is least likely among the four because I think in the bowl game, it was demonstrated, I think, definitively that he wasn't even the best quarterback this year. I think that's fair, yeah. Any disagreement from anybody? Nope. Okay. After that, I think it gets weird. I would say Jaden DeLora is the um, most likely because he's Rolovich's handpicked guy. Um, So even with, I think, what is it, Jarrett Jarrett Guarantano coming in from Tennessee, Tennessee. um, I would still say DeLora has probably got pole position there.
1: Didn't he get replaced, though, too, like at some point? He got
2: banged up. And so Gunner Cruz came in. I want to say that was the
0: Utah game.
1: Yeah. It's tough. I mean, Garbers just gets hurt so often. Um,
0: and wasn't good this year.
1: And, and Tyler Shuck got replaced too. Uh, Anthony, was it Anthony Brown? Like he started coming in the, the USC game and then uh, played a lot, you know, in the bowl game. I yeah, and this is a good question because I think I don't know who would be the favorite to finish the whole season out of all four of those guys.
2: Let's I would Delora. actually say, yeah, I would say Delora because, the, you know, just because you're a grad transfer doesn't mean you're going to be the starter. And if you're a guy like Rolovich, you've got a little bit of equity in the fact that this was your first year as a head coach. It was a weird offseason, it was a weird season. And Delora never really got, I mean, he looked good against Oregon State. He looked good for a half against Oregon before he kind of came back to the meet. But this was a guy who was playing having had COVID during the season. So maybe he just physically was never quite right after that. But I get the feeling if you're going to go with a true freshman, you're going to weather those up and downs. And maybe he just sees that, you know, Cam Cooper and Gunnar Cruz weren't necessarily good enough backups. And he just needs somebody to push Delora because, uh, Xavier Ward isn't quite ready to play just yet. Yeah.
1: His fourth point's kind of political. We got a lot of other questions, so I think we'll skip that. That's okay, Dave. Or uh... Why? Oh, you want to do it? Okay. Uh, all right, I mean, it's just, Brandon loves it's it. All you. <laughs> Let's just skip this one and we'll go on to the next <laughs> one. Fine.
0: Um, all right. This is from Matt from Yonaguni. What's up, Oregon 3P Pacto of Champs? Yes, no, show your work.
1: Simple to the point. What do you think, Brandon?
0: Hmm.
2: I would say my hot take is that I don't know. I can't say that. I think to me the big question is going to be how does Ty Thompson look in spring football? If Ty Thompson can come in and he wins the job, there may be some lumps early, like when they have to go to Columbus, but it could be that he's really rounding in the form in a Pac-12 play. I think Washington has if that's going to be another interesting quarterback battle, is it Dylan Morris again or if Sam Heward win the job, is it Pat O'Brien? I think with Washington basically retaining the majority of their guys that were draft eligible, uh, with the exception of the guys that opted out, like Hon Zarike, Joe Tryon, um, and then Elijah Molden, leaving, but they had a good number of guys decide to come back. Whereas I think Oregon, it feels like they lost more key guys in addition to the opt-outs. I would probably slightly trend Washington, but I think the quarterback battles of both those schools are going to be really crucial uh, there. I would have said, hey, the way Stanford was closing down the stretch, maybe they were uh, a hot take, you know, sleeper pick in the Pac-12 North, but unless Tanner Key is really, really ready, and I don't think there's any more J.J. arcega whiteside sini Fahoko types on the Stanford campus, that's probably out. And, you know, I think Cal needs a real quarterback revamp. I would probably – oh, man – I would say the winner of the Pac-12 North will come down to Washington and Oregon, and I would probably trend to one of those two schools to be the Pac-12 champs, but, you know, ASU and Utah might have something to say about that. USC, I would have said that if half their team had decided to skip their last year of school.
1: Yeah, I'm going to pick Oregon. Who's going to be the other
2: receiver besides Drake London, just out of curiosity? I'm sorry, what? Who's going to be the other featured receiver besides Drake London at USC next year?
1: So probably Brew McCoy and then, uh, you know, um, if Kyle Ford is back, which he looks like he's going to be back in time. So they still got two, f- couple more five-star guys you can uh, work with. Um, yeah. they, they should be okay. But I, I like Oregon. This was sort of like a transition year for Oregon or, you know, I want to say a rebuild year, you know, losing the entire offensive line, losing, uh, you know, with the NFL rookie of the year, most likely with Justin Herbert and still able to win the pac 12, you know, you know, weird pandemic year, they're the top recruiting class the last couple of years. I think this is the year that they'll actually pass USC in the twenty four seven sports, you know, composite talent index. Uh, they'll be right up there with the Trojans, and having a, you know an equal or more talented team hasn't really been uh, beneficial if you're playing for USC when you're playing those kind of teams. So I feel like this will be there's they can build on a Weird 2020, but that they still end up winning the conference, so yeah, I, I think they're going to be the favorite to win in 2021, and I think they will.
0: Uh, Oregon lost to Cal this year, um, yeah. in football, and uh, <laughs> they also lost to Oregon State. Uh-huh. Um, they beat UCLA in a game they should have lost, uh, they beat them by three, um, and then they beat USC, so I guess that's nice, but they lost to Ohio- Iowa State by 17. I guess my point is um, Oregon kind of sucked this year, um, and this was
1: their most That was Dave Woods teams. that
0: said
2: that, not Brandon Huffman at David Woods.
0: Yeah, yeah, No, please <laughs> bring it to me.
1: Um, they kind of sucked and won the conference, which is that's, – but, but, that's Okay, but, but
0: let's go back just a little bit because you were talking in the advance of that game that no, it wouldn't actually be winning the conference because they're an invalid whatever North champion because they didn't even play Washington. Washington may have been the best team in the league. They just didn't really get a chance. But I guess my point is, yeah, on any given day they can beat USC because the whole conference was kind of a joke this year. But Oregon was among them. And I don't know. The way they played this year, I was not impressed what it looks like without – because we almost have to reevaluate now based off of how good Justin Herbert looks in the NFL. Um, Because we were knocking him throughout his Oregon career as not – you know, oh wow. He's he's not that great. Why are people talking about him so good or so well? And um and then it turns out that he's like you know one of the best like probably five quarterbacks in the NFL already as a rookie. Um and uh and that just makes me think. Well, okay, this offense suddenly looks like you know kind of a mess with Tyler Shuck and how much was Herbert covering for things and is Mario Cristobal just Jim Mora on an accelerated timeline? So I guess my point here is. Yeah, they may have all the talent in the world, but I have some questions about the coaching. I have some questions about the development. I have some questions about the schemes. Um, so I guess my point here is I'll
1: take the field. So no organ. All right. Um, we have an email from Matthew in Mountain View. All right now in the Zodiac Killer. Hello, gents. As one of the four known Stanford fans, I would like to officially absolve, Dave, of having to sing All Right Now. Why, you may ask? You see, I actually like the song. It bring, brings back many fond memories of Stanford football and basketball games, and I'd rather not have those memories sullied by an egregiously bad performance.
0: Wait, wait, what? wait, wait, wait. Step off here. <laughs> All right, Matthew, I was with you until then, but egregiously bad? It would be bad. Let's let's not talk about anything. like It, it wouldn't be good, but egregiously bad. You've never even heard me sing. It's fine. It's whatever. It's like pure dad in a shower. But it's fine. <laughs> it's right. like totally fine. It's not egregiously bad. Step off with that.
1: He says and what if Dave disagrees with my prediction of his singing ability? <laughs> well then, prove me wrong, Dave. <laughs> prove me wrong. So we'll save that one probably for another you're, you're, we still have to do your uh, your solo performance. Uh, as for the Zodiac killer, there's no possibility that creepy voicemail Stanford fan TM could be him because he's already it's already been well established that the real zodiac killer, is Ted Cruz and he has a link to a Wikipedia page. <laughs> Honestly, it's shocking that this is not even the worst thing said about Ted Cruz in the past week. Keep up something or other, Matthew from Mountain View. Love
0: it. Love it. Oh. All right.
1: Um one last we got this one's for Brandon actually. For Hoffman, not this is a know. question for Hoffman.
0: <laughs> question Brian and Derek. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it's a Nick. Nick goes question for Hoffman in his email.
0: <laughs> Nick, a uh, longtime listener from Washington State. How does University of Tennessee QB Jarrett Guarantano fit into the Cougs 2021 season? Does Jaden Delora retain the starting role or does Guarantano take it from him? And then who is who is Washington State's best recruit for the last recruiting cycle? And what other transfer portal players could you at uh, Washington State be targeting?
2: Listen, if Washington State has Jaron Guarantano as their quarterback, you can officially panic. I love it. Just not a Jared Guarantano fan. And I don't care that – I mean, I could sit here and be political and say, oh, well, he was screwed over by the fact that Jeremy Pruitt wouldn't be able to call an offense if there was nobody on the other side of the field playing defense. <laughs> I think he just really struggled, and it's confidence is shot. Huff is is
0: letting his hair down here at hour, hour and 30 minute mark. (laughs)
2: Uh, I'm I'm just trying to be real. Like if they're expecting him to be Gardner Minshew, just stop that right now. He's not going to be Gardner Minshew. If he's playing, then Delora either got hurt or Rolovich just went through a cycle where he said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to go with this big kid from New Jersey because good football players come from New Jersey. I not a huge Jared Guarantano as a passer fan. And I think that his struggles these last few years kind of give credence to why you should be a little bit worried. I mean, he threw a decent amount of interceptions in high school. You know, he was a dual threat, a true kind of dual threat guy, but it wasn't like the kid set the world on fire as a passer in high school either. Now, granted, you're not playing against the talented defenses like you do in the SEC that, check my notes, how many points did Alabama give up to Ole Miss, like 50? Um, Yes, you're not playing against those talented SEC defenses in the Pac-12, but you also don't have necessarily the overwhelming talent. I mean, if there's one thing that Butch Jones did, besides do a really average job as a head coach at Tennessee, is he did a good job recruiting. And player development has been the issue there the last few years, so – I am still a big Jaden Delora fan. I still think he's their best bet to win
1: moving forward. All right. Um, we, we have that tweet. Uh, we have some tweets we can read for you, and we'll let you go, Brandon. I know that's been a long show. The uh, First one I saw is Mr. TPSM, friend of the show. He says, perhaps have Brandon break down how each school is doing with their various pipelines, including Hawaii and Texas and feeder programs. And he's also interested to know how Oregon's holding up adapting to Dante Williams defecting to USC.
2: Well, Oregon finished with the highest rated class in the Pac-12, so I think they're adapting just fine.
1: They seem to be okay.
2: And they seem to be doing okay. Um, I would say in terms of pipeline states, well, or pipeline programs even, you know, it seems like Oregon's got a little bit of a pipeline going to Utah, with all respect due to the Utah fans, my boy Steve Bartle. I do think that they would be the first ones to say we need to stop letting our top player in the state go to Oregon or to Washington, which is what they've done the last few years. Uh, but I think that in terms of pipeline states and pipeline programs, I think the last couple of years with even the just the back and forthness of Bru McCoy going to Texas or USC with Bryce Young flipping from SC to Alabama, we're seeing pipelines that used to be pretty reliable start to become rather unreliable. And now we're starting to see more and more of these other national programs try to set up their own pipeline in Southern California, out on the West Coast. I mean, if Ohio State gets JT Tuimolovao, that'll be the third top fifty, top fifty player that they've gotten out of the Seattle area in the last two classes. And no Pac-12 program has been able to get three top fifty players out of the Seattle area in the last two classes. Washington's gotten two of them: Savell Smalls and Sam Geard But you don't want to see another Pac-12 fertile recruiting ground become the property of another state. So I think that that's something that the pipelines seem to be not really having a lot of oil in these days. And there's a lot more. And, And again, maybe it's just pure coincidence, but as the PAC 12 has seen a decline in its overall perception, you've seen a rise in how many PAC 12 players or kids in PAC 12 footprint are leaving the region. And I'm starting to think that pipelines are becoming dry and barren out West as more national programs figure, Hey, we can convince these kids to leave and come play for us. So yeah, the pipelines aren't what they once were.
0: Um, Here's an important one from W for Westwood. Uh, Brandon, can we get a breakdown of all quarterback prospects named Jake or Jacob over the next three to four years? Uh, That's a great projection of UW's quarterback room going forward in the Jimmy Lake era. And frankly, I'd take this another step further further. Brandon, can you rank them? Can you rank the Jake's? Can we get a Jake ranking on 247? Just so I think Washington fans especially know what is, you know, coming down the pike.
2: What if I told you that there is not a Jake in the state of Washington or out west in the next couple of classes for Husky fans to get themselves familiar with? There's a JP, and I don't know what the J stands for, so let's just assume it's Jake, but he's going to Utah. He's I know of Dylan of
0: Washington. Dylan Morris is Dylan Jacob Morris. So can we get a next level where you look at middle names? And then I know in your role, you do talk to a lot of recruits. Can you convince one of these kids, these hypothetical kids, who has it as their middle name, to then maybe go by that name? Like, could we could we work a little bit here is what I'm asking. We,
2: we could work. We could always try. Because I think, you know, if you don't give the effort, you're not willing to do the job as it is. So maybe – Somewhere down the line, there's like a Sam Heward who's like his third middle name. I know my nephew, my brother's weird, and they gave my nephew two middle names. So maybe it's like Sam something or other, you know, Jacob Heward. But I think the Jake train might be like the rest of the West Coast. It might be drying up.
0: Wow. wow. That's 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 distressing. I, I I've, we've, we've talked about it on the show, but we think um, the quarterback for Washington, it should be like, you know how like the, the Stanford Coaching roles—they all have like a title associated with them. The Washington quarterback should just be the Jake. Like Dylan Morris is the Jake. He's Jake.
2: You'll get no argument out of me. Like that should be it.
0: What
2: What is the the Stanford head football coach? It's like some super long name. You know, director of football Bernard Shaw. Like director yeah, exactly. Of George
0: Bernard Shaw, director of football. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Um, That's awesome. Yeah. just like the, the Jake of leading the offense, Sam
1: Hewitt.
2: Yeah. yeah. Love it. Or Dylan Morris. Uh,
1: Brandon, we had a couple of Washington fans uh, tweet at us uh, at bundle up Four and at bow down 79. Basically about um, was this a letdown for this Washington State class with, you know, two of the top three prospects in the state missing out on those guys? Was this a failure? What, what do you think for Washington's class?
2: You know, I, and I know I said it on the show that, that earlier that, you know, this class could be leaving them wanting for more. But I don't know that I would say it's a letdown. I would say if this becomes a trend for the next two cycles, when there's a good amount of talent and they lose guys, then maybe it's something to really worry about. You know, they're only a year removed from having the composite number one player in the state. Uh, so small staying home there, were, you know, two years ago where the top composite player in the state stayed home. So it wasn't like this has been going on. I mean, the, the interesting thing is if you go back and look at Steve Sarkeesian's time at Washington, with the exception of the 2011 class where he was able to land Kaysen Williams and Austin Safarian Jenkins, Sark had a hard time keeping in-state kids in-state. The next class after he got Casey Williams and Austin uh, Jenkins, he lost Zach Banner and Josh Garnett, who were both Washington legacies, lost them to other Pac-12 programs. Both those players ended up winning Rose Bowls in their career on the outside, interestingly enough, in what would have been Zach Banner's fifth-year senior year at Washington. fact Washington made the playoffs, but I think Josh Garnett winning three Pac-12 titles and a couple of Rose Bowls, it didn't hurt him winning the Allen Trophy. That I think the problem is, is that you have two elite players like JT and Mecca You want to keep those in. But I think if there's anything that's maybe encouraging is that there's a newfound respect for the state of Washington's high school football with national programs starting to set up shop in Seattle to try to recruit those kids. I mean, shoot, both Ohio, i both Texas A&M's head coach Jimbo Fisher, who when he was at Florida State and Dan Mullen at Florida got in trouble by making an illicit video uh, visit to a school in Seattle. So, I mean, what if? imagine being in a time where an SEC and an ACC school got a secondary violation, but also a primary violation that ended up giving them pretty tough sanctions, if you will, for visiting a kid in Seattle as a recruit. So if anything, if the next two, three classes, they start losing those in-state kids to other programs, then maybe there's something to worry about. But if there's, probably one way to to put a smiley face on it, you could say, hey, the state of Washington has never been as more thoroughly recruited as it's been the last couple of years. And that's giving respect to those prospects in the state that if we can keep a couple of them a cycle, then we'll be okay." The interesting thing is, I mean, you guys are both covering L.A. schools. L.A. loses top players all the time. Arizona Phoenix is losing top players all the time. The Bay Area is losing top players all the time. So Seattle, I think, and, and UW especially, they're kind of dealing a little bit more with what the rest of the Pac-12 I mean, Utah, even with the success Kyle Whittingham has had there, he's losing players in the state of Utah to other Pac-12 programs all the time. I think Washington is now kind of experiencing a little bit more what the rest of the Pac-12 is that as there becomes a rise in appreciation for the caliber of player in your backyard – So does your recruiting effort become that much more difficult when you're going against national programs. And now Seattle is finding and Washington's finding what USC and UCLA and Arizona State and Utah have had to be in Cal have had to deal with for the last few years that West Coast kids want to leave and there's no longer a monopoly on keeping those kids home.
1: All right, Brandon Huffman, doing such a great job. He's a national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports. Follow him on Twitter at Brandon Huffman, H-U-F-F-M-A-N, not Huffman. Um, (laughs) Brandon, we spent, you know, an hour and 40 minutes of your life wasting time with us, but we appreciate it. Thank you so much uh, for coming on.
2: Hey, fellas, it was great to talk with both of you. I appreciate you having me on.
0: Beautiful, Brandon Huffman.
1: All right, well, that's going to wrap up our show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Great stuff from uh, Brandon Huffman. Next week, we'll try to do the Pac-12 South. I don't know. We could get Brandon back on if, or we could do biggins or, or Angula or something. Have you thought about this, Dave? No, you didn't, no. of course. No. <laughs> have
0: I <thought>, haven't <laughs> thought about what's going to happen next week.
1: No. no, no, I haven't. Yeah, I have to set all this stuff up. So, well, uh, whatever I decide, will Dave will go along with it, and uh we'll talk to Brandon. I don't know, Brandon. Would you want to do the South too, or do you? Let's you know, do the South. You want? Okay, we'd love to have Let's you back.
0: <laughs> Let's roll this shit back. Let's do it again. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Dude, I mean, like, I just Mo, like
2: Moby and Gwen Stefani once saying I'm here for the south side or something to that effect ah wow.
1: yes well That's I think it. it'd be good too because we got your perspective on the north and like you can kind of make some comparisons to what you said for the south team but that sounds great we got something to look forward to uh, next week alright well that'll wrap it up uh, Brandon Huffman David Woods I'm Ryan Abraham thanks so much for tuning in to the podcast of champions and we will talk to you next time bye, bye.